Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to look at a man who has courage, a man who has the courage to stand up and to speak in a moment to change an atmosphere in a room. God puts you and me. He elevates us. He, he, God wants, I'll, I'll say more about this. God wants to elevate you. This is not some flattery success sermon. I'm just telling you, he wants to elevate you. He wants to put his people in positions of influence so that he can speak through them, so he can lead through them, so his kingdom can break into this world. You and I are salt. We're meant to be here to bring his influence to preserve a troubled society. You're watching what happens when a society walks away from the standards of God. How much fun is this? All right, well, you and I are here. And our role is to be salt in this world everywhere he puts us. Father God, open the word. Give us a passion for it. Give us a joy in your word. Open ears, open eyes, and grace me to speak your word and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll start at Acts chapter 5. You recall we talked about the uh, power in community, and we looked at that early church. Remember that section? We, we saw they are having... Uh, such gatherings, they're so large in the, in the uh, temple area. They're in that great, it's 60 acres of stones. So if you wonder how does it handle a big crowd, well, that's how it handles a big crowd. 60 acres of flat stone in, in that court of the Gentiles. And, and so you've got, you've got all of this area, and you have crowds of many, many thousands gathering, listening uh, to Peter, John, the apostles preach, and then they are bringing their sick. And so they're preaching and then they're healing or they're healing and then they're preaching. I don't know which it was. Jesus often did the second. But they're, they're having this great ministry time and all of this is going on. The crowds are so large now that, that people can't even, there's, there's no hope that you can wait in line to be prayed for. And so they're taking their sick and they're, they're lining, they figure out where Peter walks to and, to and from home and they're putting sick people on cots and waiting all day till he walks by in the hope that he'll touch them. Or, and, and in fact, it, as, as we read it, there's so many people even lining the streets, he can't stop and pray for everybody. So they're hoping just his shadow will pass over. And so as he passes over, they're taking it like he's reaching out and touching them, going, Lord God, as the pass, shadow hits them and they're laying hold of the Lord. That's the environment. Well, the, the, the religious leaders are watching the awakening of Jerusalem and of the Jewish people. There is a mass move toward Christ and they have to stop it in their minds. They are alarmed and we're at war. So we pick up here at verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with his associates. That is the sect of the Sadducees. There were Sadducees, there were Pharisees. These are the guys who are what we would call the liberals. And they were filled with jealousy. 
They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. Notice what kind of jail? Public. Last time they arrested Peter and John, they put them in a private cell there somewhere in the temple grounds, keeping the whole thing quiet. Now they're making a statement. They want, they want the whole city to know this is off limits. We're done with this. All right? And so they put them, all 12 of them, in a public jail so everybody knows the apostles have been arrested. But during the night, verse 19, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. So they put them in jail and there at dawn the next morning are the whole thing, Peter, John, everybody walking in, setting up shop, and starting all over again, and the crowds gather. So, and everybody knows they were arrested. And so this is a huge miracle. You can imagine the crowd's bigger today than ever. Now, when the high priests and his associates came, they called the council together, and it says, even all the senate of the sons of Israel. That, that's word senate. I don't know why we put that in there. The word means a council of old people. Hallelujah. And... <laughs> Wisdom, folks, come on, come on. You can't get this old and not learn something. So, so you have this council of elders in, in addition to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin at this point is about 23 people, and, 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 and they're a, a particular group. But now, uh, not Caiaphas, Annas has called in the elders of the tribes of Israel. He wants to get a consensus. This is a huge, massive movement. It's a political problem. He wants everybody buying in because he wants a death sentence. He wants to kill these guys. So he's called in a large group and he's going to hold a trial and try to get a death sentence. All right? Uh, so you've got the old guys there too. And this, they sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back saying, we found the prison house quite securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. We found we, when we had opened up, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But when someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. It literally says, look, they're standing there. Well, this meeting room they're in is in the temple grounds off of the court of the Gentiles too. So he basically says, look, check it out. You're not going to like this. Is everybody... You know, you can hear oy vey from however many people. So they're, they're looking out there and they, here's the crowd bigger than ever. And then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, uh, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. That means this Sanhedrin plus the elders, old, old guys. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 
And the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him, it doesn't say on a cross, by sticking him on a, on a, on a wooden stake. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. We're preaching, and then the power of the Holy Spirit is coming. People are getting baptized in the Spirit. They're getting healed. So God is testifying to it as well, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Now, here, now here watch what happens. We've got this, this, this angry group. When, you, when, when you're in the Sanhedrin and you're going to vote, you stand. And so I, you can just see right now, the whole group is on their feet saying, stone them. All right. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. That's the census uh, you read about in Luke 2. This is the days of Caesar Augustus. He made a census, that one. And people after, uh, drew people after him. He perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of act or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them or else you may be found fighting against God. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. And they went on their way rejoicing. It wasn't just what he said, it was who said it. Very few of the dignitaries in that room could have stopped that lynch mob. It took a special voice at the right time and a lot of courage to stand and rebuke the elders of Israel. God elevates his people to positions of leadership so he can speak through us at critical moments. There are times when even one voice speaking clearly, forcefully, respectfully, will turn the tide of a decision. In fact, looking back in history, most great decisions came because one person or only a few took a stand for what was right and then persevered in that stand. In hindsight, these people are heroes, but at the time they often suffered under enormous pressure to conform. And when they didn't, they were mocked threatened, and even killed. Undoubtedly, most of these brave souls questioned themselves wondering how they ended up so out of step with everyone else. Ever feel that? How did I get so out of step with everybody? Often their selfless service took place out of sight, behind closed doors, one-on-one, -on -one, and came as a passionate appeal to principle. Those about to open a door that would usher in trouble, were confronted with truth, and a deceptive spell was broken. And sometimes that brave, lonely person was the leader, the final decision maker, who had to take a hard, unpopular stand, trusting that God would intervene and defend him or her. Our lesson today looks at just such a person, 
a man named Gamaliel, whose faithfulness to the word had elevated him to high position, and who on this day, within a window of a few seconds of time, had to decide whether or not to risk it all by rebuking the entire Sanhedrin and eldership of Israel. He's a man to whom we owe a great debt of thanks and who models for us the godly courage each of us will need when our moment comes. Let me retell the story. You need to really picture this because it's quite the powerful moment. When the council's designated representatives arrived at the prison, they discovered the prisoners were not in their cells. And immediately they returned with this report. We found the prison itself completely locked with every area secured and the guards still standing at their posts by the door of each cell. But once the doors were opened, we found no one inside. That's the literal. As they listened to these words, the captain of the temple guard and the high priest were completely at a loss as to how to respond. They were stunned, wondering what was going to happen next. In the midst of this confusion, someone arrived and reported, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Immediately, the captain of the guard, along with those who had been sent to retrieve the prisoners, went down to the temple courtyard to summon the apostles to appear before the council. This time, they asked them to voluntarily accompany them, taking care to avoid using force because they were afraid of provoking a violent reaction by the huge crowd that had been listening to the preaching. The general attitude in the city toward the apostles was at this point so favorable, they feared they might be stoned if they handled them violently. Once again, the apostles were placed in front of a large semicircle of seated elders. They're seated, and it's a semicircle. As they stood there, the high priest took it upon himself to interrogate them. He began by pointing out that they had defied the council's previous command. He said, we specifically ordered you not to teach the people to believe upon this name. And now look at what you've done. You've filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're trying to convince people that we're criminals guilty of murdering this man. When you have a trial, particularly a life and death sort of trial, you take a long time in this situation with the Sanhedrin. Uh, you, you take a long time, you allow all kinds of people to argue the case, particularly in defense of the people. And if there's any question at all, you dismiss them. You do not do a capital case. If even when you decide you're going to execute someone, you must wait 24 hours to make sure that is settled and you still feel it 24 hours later. Put that in perspective in how they tried Jesus. And you realize this whole, this, that whole process. I, I read about how the Sanhedrin does this. And, and that situation with Jesus was completely illegal. And, and you, have, you have here uh, a, a rush to judgment. The high priest himself wants these people taken out. He takes it on himself. He becomes the prosecutor. He, he starts questioning them and going right at them. Peter, along with the apostles, does not help the matter at all. Answered him this way. It's necessary to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you took with your own hands. The word he uses there means you seized him with your own hands. The word hands is in there. You seized him with your own hands. And then he says, hanging him on a wooden stake. I mean, it doesn't say tree, doesn't say cross, nothing, nothing ambiguous. You, you took him with your hands and you put him on a stake. 
Peter is not trying to calm the situation. (laughs) He is our ruler and savior. And God highly exalted him to the right hand in order to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these events and proclaim that we proclaim. We've seen what we're talking about. And as the Holy and the Holy Spirit whom God gave to those who obey him. Those who were listening were cut deeply by these words and fully intended to kill them. In the midst of this uproar, a certain member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, his Hebrew name would be Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the law, honored by the entire nation, stood to his feet and ordered that the men be taken out of the room so that the council could talk privately about the matter. You've got a roar going on, and this guy, it had to be the decision of seconds. See, he didn't know this was going to erupt until Peter stands up and says what he says. So he's probably thinking, oh, we'll be all right. We'll be all right. We'll be all right here. And then Peter gets up and goes, you stuck him on a wooden stake with your own hands. <laughs> and the whole thing is just, and, and so in the matter of just a few seconds, here's this rising going, kill him, stone him. He, this teacher of the law stands up and says, stop, put him outside. He takes the room. This is, very, this is very brave. It's amazing. He stood to his feet and ordered the men be taken out. He said to them, men, Israelites, watch out. That's his words. You may bring trouble upon yourselves by what you're about to do to these men. He reminded them of two previous insurrections. I already read that. Verse 38, then Gamaliel's integrity really shone through. He introduced a note of doubt into the room. By suggesting that it was possible that this movement was of God. He didn't say it was, but by simply asking the question, he implied that he, a very prominent teacher of the law, was not yet sure of the answer. In other words, in his own mind, there was a possibility that God was helping them, that God was with this Jesus movement. Any honest observer would have come to the same conclusion, but at that time, there was a core of people around the high priest particularly among the Sadducees who refused to be moved even by a resurrection. Look, they know, this group knows the tomb was empty. It was their guards. These weren't Roman guards that stood in front of the, of the tomb when Jesus was put in it. It was Levitical guards that was stood. The Roman governor said, I'm not wasting my dollars. I don't think the Romans used dollars. But I'm not wasting my money and putting my guards in front of some some." dead guy's tomb. No. You want a guard? You have soldiers. Put your own. That's what, that's what Pilate told him. So you've got Levitical guards that were standing there. It was Levitical guards that saw the angels. It's Levitical guards that have to come back and say, these angels came and it's gone. And then they pay them and say, tell everybody you fell asleep and we'll cover you. So this group knows. They've already seen a resurrection. Then they've seen a healing of a man they've all watched for, for decades get remarkably healed. And now you've got this miraculous release from prison. By standing up and speaking out, Gamaliel halted what had become a lynch mob. He ordered everyone literally to stand back and leave these men alone. Because he said if this movement was only the result of human plans or efforts, it would fall apart and collapse. But if it came from God, if he were the one who had Will these things to happen? If, if it were his power that was at work among them, then warned Gamaliel, you'll never be able to destroy them. 
And you might be found fighting against God, and they were persuaded by him, is what it says. The apostles were called back into the room and flogged for disobeying the Sanhedrin's previous command, which means the high priest made them lie down on the ground right there and had them whipped on their bare backs up to 40 times. And while, while he oversaw the process, that's the law. And when the punishment was finished, they were once again commanded not to speak upon the name of Jesus and then released. Gamaliel's advice to the council had been to leave the men alone because God would stop the movement if it were not from him. But the high priest and the Sadducees who supported him refused to entertain even the slightest doubt that Jesus might have been raised from the dead. Nor was the high priest willing to let the apostles go unpunished. Gamaliel had intervened and prevented him from getting the consensus he needed to stone them. Do you see that? But he made sure they were beaten and given another command to stop preaching Jesus. And undoubtedly, he added threats, though none are mentioned. Gamaliel just took the leadership away from the high priest and turned the tide in that room. To understand why Gamaliel was able to turn the tide of opinion in that room, we have to understand the power of a good reputation. Reputations aren't built in a day. They're built over the course of years. They're the result of a history of good decisions, particularly selfless decisions. People watch us make choices. And when we choose to do what's right, especially when we personally suffer for doing what's right, trust is built. When doing the loving Selfless thing, doing what pleases God rather than myself becomes a pattern in my life, then people start to trust me. Do you follow that? You want to lead your family? It's the person in the family who makes selfless decisions to do what is the right thing. There's two different kinds of power. One is to frighten people. They do it because they fear you. The others, they do it because... They respect you. You can control people to a measure with fear. It's the person in the family with that kind of heart. And you know, it doesn't mean, it's, it doesn't mean whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. You might be the youngest of 10 siblings. But for some reason, the whole family looks to you. I don't even want any hands. I, I just know this. Is, I already know it's true. I've and who is it? It's the person with integrity. The person who's shown a life of, 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 of that kind of decisions. They feel safe with me knowing that I'll do the right thing when they need me. This trust is the source of moral authority. It doesn't depend on the person's looks, gender, social status, or income. It arises from what they do, how they live. Nobody can hide their character forever. Sooner or later, it'll show. In one brief statement, Luke tells us Gamaliel had a great reputation. He says, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. I want to introduce you to Gamaliel for a second. He was the grandson of the famous Rabbi Hillel, who was the founder of a movement that produced a more gentle, liberal type of Pharisee. Have you heard of the... There was... It, there was Shammai and Hillel, two big controversies, two big schools of Phariseeism. Well, Hillel is the nice group. They're the gentler group. Shammai is the really down to every point of the law and, and, and the harder side of it. So he's the grandson of one of the most famous names in, in Judaism. 
he became known as Gamaliel the Elder and was revered in his day and is still quoted today as one of the great rabbis. I've heard him quoted. I've read, I've read his quotes. He is, it's, it's like one of our great church fathers. That's who this guy is. Listen to this statement about him written in the Mishnah after his death. Quote, since Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, Rabban means my, my rabbi, died there, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. The comment is, once this great rabbi left, he was controlling the culture. He was setting a godly culture in our nation and when he, we lost him, things fell apart. He had that kind of influence on the nation. This is the man, listen, who intervened to save the apostles' lives. I mean, let's go back into this room. Who are the, who are the people they're going to stone? How many of them? All 12 are about to be stoned. Just let that sink in a minute. God elevates his people. When a person surrenders to Jesus Christ, picks up their cross and follows him daily, their reputation will grow and so will their influence. And God himself is behind this process. He wants to elevate his people into positions of influence so he can bless those they lead. Turn with me to Psalm 18. I want to show you something. Now, I know there may be a, a few people who are ambitious for position, but what I run into for the most part is people who, who don't want to be pushed into leadership. Anyone want to say, uh-huh? <laughs> most people go, no, 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 no. Somebody else can do that. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to lead. I don't want to lead. Listen to me. Is God is working his character into you? You can't stop the process. I mean, maybe, I guess you can somehow absolutely hijack it and refuse to do it. When you're honest, when you're kind, when you're patient with people, when you're wise, when, the, you, when you start having a history of good decisions, people see that. And there is, there is this elevation. You become, wherever you're put, whether it's in your family, whether it's, it, whether it's among your friends, whether it's in a workplace, there is simply this natural elevation that goes on. People begin to respect you, almost irrespective of your titles. David writes, this is a fabulous psalm. He starts out and he, and he, and he says, I was in this mess and I cried to God and God came and got me. And it's, it's like, a, like an angry mother bear coming after him. And it's, it's really fun to read. And then verse 16, he says, he sent from on high and he took me and drew me out of many waters and delivered me from my strong enemy. So David says, all right, I call to God. He reached down, picks me up and then begins to work with me. And these next verses of the Psalm, David says, God turned me into a warrior. God made me strong. He began to work in me. And, and then the, the whole passage is beautiful, but I'll, I'll just sample a few. Uh, he begins to declare the strength of him. Look at verse 29. I'll start there. For by you, I can run upon a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. He says, God has made me strong enough to actually come against a troop of enemies and win or leap over a wall. 
As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? Who's a, a rock except our God? And then he says, God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. And then he says this. I love this. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. There's no such thing as a bow of bronze. He's saying, God, you make me so I, I can do the impossible. You make my feet like hind's feet. You know what a hind is? It, he's talking about, well, we say deer, but what David was talking about is an animal he'd watched by the, by the scores at Ein Gedi. And there's these, there's these goats. Ein Gedi is, the, is a place that he hid out from Saul. It means the spring of the wild goats. And these goats aren't like our little billy goats. It's not, it's, these things look like deer in the sense that they're, they're that lovely brown color. They're big animals. And they've got these beautiful long horns. You know, they're like this. And they're all over the hillsides there. And the amazing thing is... It's like they have suction cups on their feet. They can walk up anything. It's just... They go right up the hill and not slip. You can watch them standing on some some rock that's leaning, and they're over on the edge leaning over to see you. you Looking at you thinking, get back, you idiot. It's, it's just like watching a a 14-year-old at the Grand Canyon. Move away from the edge. And sorry, any 14-year-olds, I am not, I'm assuming I'm talking about a dumb one, not you. Okay. Don't. Um, Stories come. Into the Grand Canyon a lot. Okay. So, so, So he says, you've made my feet like this. And what he's saying, listen to this, is God... You elevate me in authority and position, and I won't fall. Have you ever thought, if I rose to that position, if I had that influence, if, if I became that, it would ruin me. I couldn't do it. I'd collapse. I'd fail. And God says, no, you wouldn't. I'll make your feet like hinds feet. And my plan for you is to elevate you. David goes on and says, I have whole nations that submit to me and they've never seen me. What is this? And he's, he's coming. God has given him authority. Why does God put his godly people in authority? Why is it important for him to elevate you into a position of influence? When a godly person is elevated into a position of authority, they automatically produce a righteous culture of honesty, kindness, fairness, respect, and accountability. Whether or not these are outwardly labeled as biblical values, the principles of the Bible are being put into practice and everyone benefits. An environment is established in which people grow healthy, And they tend to treat those they lead the same way. So justice cascades downward from person to person. Would you read Amos 5 with me? Let justice roll down like waters 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Say that again. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I want to submit to you that that's exactly how justice rolls. When God elevates a person into position and you treat people justly, they then go home and treat people justly. It spills downward. I'm thinking of a businessman right now. He's a successful businessman. But as God has you know, done a, a deep work in his heart, he said this to me. He said, you know, I make this product and we make a good one. And he said, but I've realized my real calling isn't the product we make. It, and it's, it, it isn't the money we need it. I need to be a good businessman. But he said, the real product I have, what I'm really called to do, is provide work. And he mentions how many employees he has. I have, he says, my job is to provide a godly, righteous environment for this many families. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I find that when I treat them well, when I treat them honestly and provide for them, you know, as I, as I should, and yes, we have to perform and all, but when I treat my, my, them well, he says, what I see is they grow peaceful. And he said, then they go home and treat their families the same way. Isn't that powerful? Righteousness, well, righteousness and justice flows downward like an ever-flowing stream. And so does unrighteousness. When you treat people badly, they go home crabby. I've, I've watched this in my own household. You know, you, could, you, can, you can have this event with one of the children. They're a little rough with the dog. The dog goes over and bullies the cat. <laughs> I'm serious. Have you ever seen something like that? It spills downward. So when you set, when you're lifted into that position of influence and you begin to set a righteous culture, when you begin to treat people kindly and well, they, they then go home and treat their children well. And their pets well. I'm serious. Everything begins to be affected as, it, right, as justice spills downward. I'm thinking of a man who's, who has a role in, in one of the labor unions in our, in our community. And uh, I've often prayed for him, you know, with, and there's some tears and, and pressure and all that he's facing. And he says, you know, his, his immediate boss is, is, a, is a strong Christian woman. And I said to him, don't you ever leave. <laughs> You stay there and you be a godly voice of God. You, you guys, how, aren't you grateful to have godly people in the labor unions? You care for your people. You treat honestly. You do everything justly and uprightly. Hallelujah. Where has God put you? Where are you salt? This is how it's to work. So in you go into that workplace. In you go into that, that, that school. In you go into, the, in, into that hospital room. In you go into whatever it is where God's put you. And you begin to walk in just who you are. As a man or woman of God, you just walk out your values. It's not hard. You don't have to be, I mean, we're not talking about preachiness, by the way. I'm not talking about preaching. That's fine if God opens the door. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about living that way. And treating people that way. And then here goes that culture right on downward. God places us in position 
for such a time as this. Look with me at Esther. If you're in Psalms still by any chance, just turn two books to the left. Esther, Job, Psalms. And look at chapter 4. Esther is a Jewish woman. She has been become the queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. She is, uh, I don't think the king knows at this point that she's Jewish. But there is a, a man, a vicious man in the kingdom who has, who has provoked an, a, a law which will be a, what, what some people call a pogrom. They are, have said to the, to, the, to, the, to the people of the kingdom, you, on such and such a day, you may attack the Jews and seize their assets. And that will be your reward for killing them. Oh, what a disgusting thing to do. And so this is going down. And Esther is her name, the queen. She, her uncle comes, and, and let's start about verse 10 there of chapter 4. Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. That's the guy who's communicating uh, for her uncle. Her uncle to the, is Mordecai. And all the king's ser- and tell him this. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, and that is he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. She says, tell my uncle who's asking her to go and appeal to her husband. She says, tell him, do you realize I will probably die for that? If I, I, I cannot come unbidden. And then look what Mordecai, her, her uncle says. They related the words to Mordecai and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. This genocide will get to you too. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for what? For such a time as this. Say for such a time as this. God has put you in position. You have become the queen for a reason. He has elevated you into this role so that when he needed you, you would speak up. You see it? All right, let's go back to our text. Willing to stand alone. Sometime in a person's life, usually as a child or as a new believer, a person makes a decision whether or not to separate from the herd. It happens when the group we're part of chooses to go bad, a bad direction. And we're forced to decide whether or not we'll go with them. This doesn't mean we don't love the people in our group. But we realize it may mean they won't love us anymore. So memories of such moments can be quite painful. But they're also essential for every person who wants to follow God. It's a form of surgery where the fear that controls us is severed. And we discover we'll be all right if we have to live alone. Have you had those kinds of moments where you had to make a choice or go away from the group? 
We all want friends. We all like to be liked. We all want to be admired by our friends in our circles. But there come these terrible moments when a choice has to be made. And when you make those choices, it can be rough. Have you experienced that? Remember, we are not talking about being antisocial. We're talking about boundaries. Lines we refuse to cross because we love and fear God. And because we love people enough to do what's right, even if they misinterpret what we do as hatred or hypocrisy. These choices are like dying. And in some situations, we have to die over and over again. This is one of those stories I don't, I don't want to even want to tell. Um, I really don't. But I guess I will. I did last night, so why not? When I was in the fifth grade, I actually think it often starts in, in childhood. There come these moments when character's being formed. Do you choose? What will you do in these, in these moments? I was in the fifth grade, Sycamore Elementary School. And uh, that was a hard year for me. My grandfather died. It was just... Anyway... I, had obs- I observed one of my classmates forging uh, lunch tickets. We had these little gray lunch tickets, and you'd give it to the lady, and you'd get your lunch. And he found it, some gray construction paper, and he drew them out exactly and was using those. Now, the problem is this guy is the son of one of the most popular doctors in town. So it wasn't a financial need. This isn't some poor kid who needs lunch. This is just the guy who's figured out he can forge a lunch ticket. And isn't that cute? And then, of course, he's, a, he's kind of a leader. And so others start doing it. So we've got this thing going. It's really pretty ugly. And I, I think I talked to him. But uh, well, it wasn't going to stop. And so I finally went and I talked to the teacher. And I said, we've got some people forging lunch tickets. I wasn't careful. I was overheard. I wasn't even trying to be sneaky. I just thought, man, this can't go on. That day, I I was heading home and uh, had walked north uh, from the school uh, about two blocks. And I heard a commotion, and I looked back, and I looked down this, this face, and coming out of the school fence was, I don't know, 15 and at the head of him was one family friend. Let's get Shell. And this group was coming. I'm walking with a friend. I looked at him and he goes, <laughs> you know, I don't know you. You know, and uh, I thought if I head home, if I head home, they're going to catch me. And so I went through the backyards of the, of the thing. I don't know why, why I did it, but I just headed through the backyards. And they got to my house first, and my mother was home. Now, you just have to know my mother. Um, and so here comes this group of, of 15, maybe, angry guys, and this one, who is <laughs> a family friend, knocking on the door, we want Shell, and we want him out here. Well, my mother just tore their lips off. And, and uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd seen that. I, I just wish I'd seen that. 
Um, and, but I, and, and then, of course, the next day, I got to go to church, school. And mercifully, I had a good fifth grade teacher, Mr. Mann, two ends. And he spoke to everybody, and he said, Steve's done the right thing. And he defended me, and, you know, I wasn't popular. But I felt, the, I felt at that moment, it was when I looked down and saw this gang coming in. Let me tell you, at that age, I wasn't a Christian. I used to fight regularly in the park. And, and, and I'd been in it, at it with a number of them. And we would have had a, it, it, was, it would have been violent. And when I looked down there and saw 15 coming after me, the adrenaline, I can still feel the moment. I mean, this was ugly. And I realized, so this is the price of separating from the herd. It's a lesson I've never forgotten. Something happened to me even then. Who am I, what am I? Am I popular? Or am I going to do what's right? Because apparently, at times, you can't be both. Willing to speak. Everyone knows people who talk too much. And I've grown tired of listening to their opinions. But for, the, for most people, the problem isn't that they talk too much. It's that they're afraid to speak up. Especially in tense moments when important decisions are being made. There's a lot going on in the back of their minds, but nothing coming out of their mouths. The raging internal debate is going on, a raging internal debate is going on, in which they're questioning their motives, their intelligence, their role, and they can usually find reasons to conclude that the right thing to do is to stay silent. But the real question each of us needs to ask ourselves in those moments is, what is God asking me to say? We're wise to remain silent when he's silent. But when a word of knowledge or wisdom comes, when the gift of faith begins to burn, when we know what the word of God has to say about this matter, then the spirit is prompting us. And when he's prompting us, we need to courageously speak what he gives us. When he gives it. It's not okay to do it an hour later in the hallway to two people. You see that? I don't know how many people, and, and we, we, we all do this, you know. Um, the Lord will give you something. You choke it down. And then later say, you know, I had, I had a word. Really? Been nice back then. There's a timing as well. There's a timing and there's something that needs to get said in that moment. How, how many recognize when I, I, I have so often gone to meetings and said, Lord, I'm not going to open my mouth. You can imagine I have the capacity to do that. I am not going to open my mouth unless you give me something to say. And so I will. I'll sit silent. And then comes the what? The thought, the, the point that says, oh, no, no, we, nah, no, no, that's, that, we, uh, that's not right. You hope somebody else will say something. And then they don't. And then they're waiting for you. And you have to say something. The power of truth spoken boldly, clearly, look at this, respectfully, even lovingly. You often say the hard thing because you love people, not because you hate them. Can lift a cloud of confusion, expose wrong motivations, protect the innocent, and reveal glorious opportunities. 
Before we close, we need to stop and reflect on the enormous debt of gratitude we owe this man, this Gamaliel. By being willing to stand to his feet and speak at that critical moment, Gamaliel prevented all 12 of our apostles from being stoned to death. If he hadn't, I, I assume the Lord would have delivered them another way, but he, but he did. And it was a terrible moment of spiritual attack. But God had a man in that room who was willing to stand alone and speak. And because he was a man whose life spoke even louder than his words, everyone stopped and the spell was broken and the devil's plan defeated. Not only should we be grateful, but we should also see him as a godly example of courage. We must realize that when, wherever God places us, whether family, workplace, school, friends, church, or government, we too will find ourselves elevated into positions of influence for such a time as this. I've got one more story before I close. What happened in Lincoln's life privately uh, is remarkable. They had been losing the war one battle after another, to the point that Lee was about to surround Washington, D.C. They were having a tremendous debate. Let me tell you something. I don't care what people tell you. The Civil War was about slavery. That would, I mean, read some history. That's all it was about. It was about slavery. Honestly, as well it should be. And Lincoln had... Lincoln... His, his cabinet did not support him. The Congress mocked him. He was called an imbecile on the floor of Congress. Um, the troops did not support what he was doing. There came a battle, and it, and it was the one just before Gettysburg. And Lincoln had this huge argument with his cabinet and all. And then he went out and he prayed. And they did win that battle. And he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. During the Battle of Gettysburg, Lincoln was amazingly calm. If they'd lost it, the North would have lost the Civil War. And he was calm and at peace, and no one knew why. And then finally someone asked him, a general named Daniel Sickles. Only later did Lincoln confide why he possessed such calm. One of the wounded of the battle was General David Daniel Sickles, a man whose injury led to his leg being amputated. Shortly after the battle, he was moved to a house in Washington where he, visited, he was visited by the president. During the conversation, Sickles asked about the level of concern in the Capitol when Lee's army was approaching, surrounding Washington, D.C. The president acknowledged that measures had been taken to evacuate the city, but that he personally had remained confident of the battle's outcome. When asked why, the president related this. He said, when Lee crossed the Potomac and entered Pennsylvania, followed by our army, 
I felt that the great crisis had come. I knew that defeat in a great battle on northern soil involved the loss of Washington, to be followed perhaps by the intervention of England and France in favor of the Confederacy. And I went to my room and I got down on my knees in prayer. Never before had I prayed with so much earnestness. I wish I could repeat my prayer, but I felt I must trust in Almighty God. I gave our people, he, pardon me, he gave the people the best country given to man. He alone could save it from destruction. And I tried my best to do my duty and found myself unequal to the task. The burden was more than I could bear. I asked him to help us and give us victory now. And I was sure my prayer was answered and I had no misgivings about the result at Gettysburg. The discussion was observed by a general James Rustling. Somebody else is watching this who gave the following account of that conversation. He said in reply to a question from General Sickles, whether or not the president was anxious about the battle of Gettysburg, Lincoln gravely said, no, I was not. Some of my cabinet and many others in Washington were, but I had no fears. General Sickles inquired, how, how was this? And seemed curious, and Lincoln hesitated, but finally replied, well, I'll tell you how it was. In the pinch of the campaign, when everybody seemed panic-stricken, Nobody could tell what was going to happen, oppressed by the gravity of our affairs. I went to my room one day and locked the door. Then I got down on my knees before Almighty God, and I prayed to him mightily for, the vic for victory at Gettysburg. I told him that this was his war, and our cause, his cause. But we couldn't stand another Fredericksburg or Chancellorsville. And then I made a solemn vow to Almighty God that if he would stand by our boys at Gettysburg, I would stand by him. And I'll tell you what he means by that in one moment. After that, I don't know how it was, and I can't explain it. Soon a sweet comfort crept into my soul that Almighty God had taken the whole business into his own hands and that things would go all right at Gettysburg. That's why I had no fears about you. Let me read you the vow he made to God. He declared this to his cabinet. I made a solemn vow before God that if General Lee was driven back from Pennsylvania, I would crown the result by the declaration of freedom to the slaves. One man who had the, the character to, to realize what was going on and to say, God, if you will be with us, we will stand with you. And we will eliminate this vile thing. It was enormously unpopular. He stood alone. And he, aren't we grateful for the courage? Aren't we grateful that Abraham Lincoln made a vow to God and kept it? Aren't we grateful that the Lord stepped in and vindicated him? One voice. I have one more thing to share with you. Turn with me if you have your Bibles. This is, this is it. It's short, but I want you to see something. Matthew chapter 25. In light of this passage, I simply wonder, what will the king say to Gamaliel? This is a picture Jesus gives of the, of the final judgment. And he says, verse 31 there in chapter 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels, he'll sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered 
And he'll separate them, remember this, as the, sh the sheep and the goats. The sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I was naked. I, you visited me in prison, you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in and clothe you, sick or in prison? And the king will say, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to the least, even the least, you did it to me. I don't know, but if that passage means what it says, I can imagine the day will come when the king will say to Gamaliel, I was on trial and about to be stoned to death. And you stood and you spoke for me and spared my life. And he'll say, when did I see you? When did I see you in trial about to be stoned and I spoke for you? And he'll say, inasmuch as you did it for these, my brothers, you did it for me. One righteous voice, one man, one woman, willing to speak. Will you and I be such people? Will we let the Lord elevate us? Will we listen? And when the Spirit gives us something to say, even though it puts us at risk, will we speak those words? Will we let the Lord, as it were, come into that situation and turn the decision to righteousness? It's costly. It certainly cost Abraham Lincoln his life. That's why he died. Gamaliel. You know, there's actually church fathers that say he became a Christian, but I mean, who knows? But we know he stood, and we know the difference it made. Lord God, make us such men and women. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Give us faith. Give us a heart full of love that's willing to pay a price. Father, I pray for all of us. Anyone who's afraid and, says, and resists being put into position where you can use them, resists being elevated. Lord, this isn't about ego. It's about letting you use us in key points of influence. We just ask you, Father, to give us the grace to do it. We ask you to give us the courage to speak and give us a heart that's willing to die. A foundation of courage. Come, Holy Spirit, use us as salt. Make us salty, full of the word of the Lord, spoken in a timely way. We ask for that grace and trust you now. In Jesus' powerful name. Are you willing to accept that assignment? Lord, hear us. In Jesus' name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, 
please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.